The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Obviously, our, our common pattern has been to sing as we start, so uh, you don't have to worry. I'm not going to lead us in singing. Um, we will sing at the end, though, um, with some assistance. I know some of our, well, all of our song helpers and leaders are out tonight, but we're going to sing at the end. I think that'll make more sense at that point in time. Um, when we finish specifically Psalm 46, which is going to be um, our point of focus this evening. So let's go ahead and open in prayer, and then um, we're going to give our attention to Psalm 46. Lord, we do give thanks to you for the opportunity to um, come together and to um, consider the, the, the glories of your word as you've revealed yourself. Here we have a context in which... Um, it's been made plain. There's not really a, a room or a place to be fearful, but to rather find peace and rest in you. It's what you would desire, and you would desire for your name to be made much of as you demonstrate your great power. So we thank you for that. We thank you that you've uh, so worked in our hearts and lives that we uh, can have this confidence and that your word is, again, made that clear. Help us to understand these things from Psalm 46 and to, to draw from them the benefit that Many generations have also benefited from, some more closely to us than others. So help us to be good students and stewards of your scriptures, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Psalm 46, um, we'll read it together in full, and then we'll go through uh, some of its uh, parts as we, as we work through it um, as a unit here. Psalm 46, for the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah, set to Almoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice, the earth melted. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of Yahweh, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Now, the breakdown of the Psalms is extremely straightforward. So sometimes we, we try to outline it based off a theme or structure. This one's very, very straightforward. The Psalm has a header, which is always helpful. Um, I do take that as uh, authoritative, and I, I do try to see what we can draw from that. And then we have how many clearly defined sections here? Three of them, right? And, and why can I say as uh, definitively that they're, they're clearly defined sections? Because they're expressed at the end with some hard pauses. You see the Selah there? Um, some people, most people, I think, actually read Selah. I, I treat it, I've always been, well, as best I can recall, I've always been trained that that's a, that's a term for pause, and so I just choose to pause. Um, and so that's, that's why, I, I, why I read it the way I do. Some people um, pause, some people read it, some people do both. But that tells us right there that there's, an intro, there's a header, okay, so the, the historical background, some of the context, and then a section, pause. 
a section, pause, and then the final section, and even a final pause with that. But that's part of, I guess, the, the, the song element of it. So it's really only a matter of titling each section, which I've done as follows. And we have a soft alliteration. Um, don't get too excited. I'm not going to dabble with this too much now, but I'll do it where I can. So Yahweh's presence eradicates fear. That's verses 1 through 3. And then Yahweh's presence ensures peace, verses 4 through 7. And Yahweh's presence ends strife, verses 8 through 11. So the only other structural matter that I think is helpful to bring up here is the, the duplication of the endings to sections 2 and 3. You see that? I colored it slightly different, maybe even more obvious on the screen there, but I want you to see there's a duplication at the end of 2 and the end of 3, both of which state Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. And that should get our attention. I think that's intentional. Well, I know it's intentionally there, but I think that's to, to draw our attention to a thematic development that really began with the first section. And finally, well, not a matter of structure, but categorical identification. This is referred to as a Psalm of Zion. Um, any ideas as to why that might be? So, and those are categories that, as people that um, study the Psalms more um, exhaustively than maybe um, we do in these kind of contexts, they, they, they categorize that these are Psalms of Ascent. These are royal Psalms. It's not necessarily inherent to the structure of the Psalms. We do have books within the Psalms, but... These are referred to as the Psalm of Zion. Any idea why? Well, uh, you think of Sons of Korah as assisting with temple worship and the temple being in Zion. Yeah, so that's, yeah, definitely with the, the nature of the structure of the singing and the, the tying that to temple corporate worship. And the word actually, Zion, is not in the Psalm. But there's, an, a, there's a, a pretty heavy reference to Jerusalem. If not by name, it's the, the holy city, the, the, the city of um, God's special presence. And so it gets uh, included in that categorization. Again, those are things that um, we do to help us study and to help us think about uh, structure in terms of larger elements and themes through the larger book of Psalms. But that's uh, how this one would be categorized. So you might hear that occasionally, a psalm of uh, such and such. Again, it's just a way to, to cluster thematically some of the psalms. Now, as we first engage the header, we can take note that like many other psalms, it, it's overtly, as Frank's already mentioned, it's overtly uh, associated with singing, right? I and mean, that makes sense. That's a common thing that we experience with the psalms is they are what often is referred to as the Hebrew Psalter, excuse me, the Hebrew worship book, as it were. So, um, and we also have for the choir director. What's the choir director do? He's leading in some form of worship, be it um, maybe a private choir or a public one or the, the larger body. And it's referenced to as a song. a song. So we know it's a song. Then there's the term Alamoth. Now, we're not at the quiz point at the time in terms of just a general exhortation, a little bit of fun in terms of some of our Bible quizzing, but does anybody know what this word means? It sounds like a tune of some kind. Boy, you're a sharp one. <laughs> Nobody really knows, but that's kind of the conclusions they come to. So I just go by set too. It's yeah, so word. it's one of those, sometimes these things are hard to know. So we there are deductions and reasonable deductions that... It's instructions on how to sing it. And so um, it's believed either to be a tune or some kind of musical instruction, maybe even um, uh, that it's... And this, I'm especially... Again, it may be that we, we do the Psalms and I give it a little bit of a lighter treatment, not super light, but a lighter treatment than some of our other more consistent efforts. But 
Some people have concluded that it's sung to a higher range, and I don't know if that's because of they've seen this term used in other places, even extra biblical uses, uh, possibly even sung in falsetto, which some of you might be like, oh, that's terrible. Why would anybody sing a worship song in falsetto? But I primed you for that, that it really can be done well, because if you came in or you were talking, like, what's that really nice song? It was Michael Card singing God's Own Fool. It's in falsetto and does it really well. So there's a place for it. But apparently it may have been sung at that higher pitch, as it were. Nevertheless, um, I'm not clear how they came to that stylistic conclusion, but it was expressed by more than one person, so I'll give it note for our purposes. Now, another element to be uh, to the historical context to consider is the popular conclusion. Again, uh, some of this is developed based off of the, the, the uh, people that give an, an exhaustive treatment of the Psalms. You can start to pick up a feel for things, right? You might not be able to say, this is it. I can tell you, I demand you to, to come to this conclusion, but you can start to see how does certain psalmist write in different contexts and how are psalms developed? And there's a the conclusion that it's maybe the development of Jerusalem may have been under siege and the Lord preserved Jerusalem. And I'm, I can see that. And I can I can be sympathetic to that and that conclusion. I think it's probably a, probably a good one. And with that, a lot of people concluded, well, what are some major incidences that we can think of based off of some of the details that we'll even mention later in the psalm? 2 Chronicles 20 or 2 Kings 18 and 19. And we're not going to, uh, for our purposes this evening, we're not going to um, go into that and read all of it and give all the historic context. But both situations, you have Jerusalem under siege, you have a righteous king who's trusting himself to God, and the Lord magnificently, supernaturally delivers. And large armies are overcome. And as the morning dawns, victory's already over. And so uh, those are two historic contexts. You may be familiar with one, especially um, even more than the other. Actually, I think one of them is the Valley of Barak or, or what's, how do we say that properly? So, and then the other one I believe was um, Hezekiah um, when he's laying the letter down weeping and petitioning before the Lord. So there's good precedent for that. There's good conclusions that are tied to that. So we can work with that as a likely historical context, Jerusalem under siege and divinely delivered. It's not necessary, but I do think it can be a helpful thing to consider. Now, we come to the first section. So Yahweh's presence eradicates fear. And here the psalmist begins, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And I would argue this is the thesis-like foundation of the psalm, and it's later expressed in the final two, uh, repeating phrases of section 2 and 3. So you remember I've already referenced, and I think I have it grayed out there for you because I wanted to focus on one section at a time, but the end of section 2 and the end of section 3 duplicate something very similar. Section 1 doesn't have to have it. I, I did read one uh, commentator that was mentioning that he was accusing of a scribe of just lazily dismissing it or, or missing it or failing to put it in. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think this statement right here develops what's duplicated in 2 and 3. So again, I see this uh, uh, statement that God is our refuge and strength, the very present help and trouble, forming the foundation and the really the tone of the whole of the psalm. And again, with this, um, where the, the foundation is established, we have the nation's identity with God, who is their refuge, their strength and help. So that's what he's communicating, their safe place and enablement. So he's He's where we go for refuge, and he is our strength, as well as a very present help in trouble. So communicating that Yahweh is accessible, because he is what? And I've repeated it um, kind of in one fashion or another with each section. He is he's with us. He's present, right? 
I know I mentioned Yahweh's presence, but he is present. And that's very, very important. That's a comfort, right? To know that he's present with his people. And it's that identification with Yahweh's presence that's so critical to this psalm. So here it's expressed most explicitly as a present help in trouble. And then later, when speaking about Jerusalem, it's the place of his holy dwelling as God is in the midst of her. And then lastly, it's the foundation of the repeated refrain that comes at the close of the second and third sections. Yahweh of hosts is with us. And then we come to verse, um, and then we'll come to the conclusion where it really drives it home and Yahweh speaks directly in terms of the application of it. But so we have that core, we have the foundation. Yahweh's with his people. He's a stronghold, he's a safe place, he's available. And then we come to verses two and three, where an argument's developed for the core truth about, uh, developed out of this core truth about Yahweh. So if this is true, what does that look like? How does it work itself out? Well, he states, therefore, so because God is our refuge and strength, a very present help, therefore, in view of that, informed by God's provision, informed by God's power and presence, we're going to do what? We're not going to fear. We will not fear. And then look at how we have, what, four of those here. So he's kind of giving these hypotheticals. Let's get, let's throw worst case dramatic context at this and see if it still works. So we're not going to fear. Well, even though, yes, even though the earth should change. That's strange. It should, the earth should shake. It should tremble. And though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. That's really dramatic, isn't it? I mean, again, these are uh, the largest uh, natural things erupting out of the earth and just kind of sliding into the sea. Though its waters roar and foam. Uh, in what context do waters roar and foam? Now, you don't go to the ocean and hold a seashell up and you're like, oh, that was sounded violent. But, well, storms and, and, yeah, the waves crashing, violent crashing, and the foaming, obviously, would be the breaking of the water. Even in natural water or fresh water, we have, this all water is natural, thankfully. Um, <laughs> even in fresh water, we'll have the white water rapids where it's just crashing and uh, just falling on itself. Though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, does the, does the fearlessness in the presence of Yahweh hold up? Yeah. The psalmist says, yes, even though these things happen, we won't fear. And then did you notice that nothing in these, uh, nothing addressed in verses 2 and 3, nothing is fixed, is it? It's all falling apart. It's all moving. It's all shaking. There is, however, one thing that's immovable in this first section. And what's that? Yeah. Yahweh, who is our refuge, strength, and present help. And so I really, I think he's setting a, a very, very clear tone right here with these first three verses that there's really nothing that's truly going to be stable in this natural creation. There's nothing truly that you can put your uh, confidence in outside of Yahweh, but for his people, he's our refuge, strength, and present help. And with this truth comes the absence of fearing anything less than Yahweh himself. Does it make sense to, to be fearful of the fixed or everything else that just rumbles and tumbles around? You want to be fearful of Yahweh in a righteous and confident way, but these other things, they don't deserve that proper fear, not when he's our refuge. So the psalmist has made it play that fear of, play that fear of anything less than a righteous fear of Yahweh has nothing by which it can anchor itself. It, it doesn't have a source in which it can say, oh, okay, that's reasonable. The only thing reasonable here is to be confident in Yahweh. Even so even when the surrounding context are fearful, which they can be, right? And we're not going to say, like, nothing's fearful. Nothing's frightening. Okay naive or something um, so there is fearful context 
And we're mindful of that, but fear itself has ultimately been neutralized. Well, how can we say that? Well, here's a, a week. No, not a week. It's the best I got illustration here. So the comfort of Yahweh's presence, I would say it's never been in a submarine, but it's like being in a submarine and staying dry. That's a good thing, right? When you're in a submarine, to be dry. What's the nature of a submarine? Let's just take the, I don't know if this is the etymology of the word, but we can at least take it apart. Sub. Marine, <laughs> so you are underwater, and yet you're dry. And then, isn't that amazing? So it's not that the water's absent. So it's not like the fearful context, the, the earth moving, the earth changing, the mountains tumbling, the waters crashing. It's not that there's not a fearful context. It's that even though you're immersed in that fearful context, yet there's really nothing that you have to fear. So the water, which is, again, it's not absent. It's seeking to... It would, if given opportunity, it would burst in with tremendous pressure and, and crush you. So game over, you're done. But even in the midst of this, you're dry and secure. Need you fear? No. That would be one context to be fearful in that situation. What would that be? Spring the leak. Yeah, spring the leak. And then you're really in a lot of trouble. But does our stronghold and refuge, Yahweh, does he spring leaks? No. No. I mean, that's... Not trying to be silly. It doesn't happen, right? So only if your refuge, strength, and present help is not sufficient, then that's grounds to be fearful. But Yahweh's refuge, strength, and present help is more than perfectly sufficient. There's therefore no need or proper place for fear. It just doesn't have a home. And so we see this plainly that, as the psalmist states, therefore we will not fear. And so, And this is a song, right? Right? What do we do every Sunday? We do it on Wednesdays to a much smaller scale, but every Sunday, what are we doing together? All right, she's already used probably three of her answers up, so somebody else. What else do we do? We, we sing, right? And what do we sing? Do we just say, like, you know what? My cousin wrote this really fun folk song. I'd like everybody to try it out. What are we singing? Worship songs. Yeah, we're singing worship songs, truth-dense, truth-rich songs, and we're affirming that which we're singing, Right? We're saying, this is true. I'm going to declare it back to God. I'm going to affirm it to one another. And this is, you see what the psalmist is doing? He's saying, this is true. Let's sing this, that we will not fear. And then we have four radical scenarios, but we will not fear. We will not fear though the earth changes, though the mountains tumble, though waters roar and foam, and though the mountains quake. And then following this foundation of confidence in God, the psalm turns its attention to the contrast of the experience of God's people expressed in his focusing on the peace and stability of Jerusalem and the raging of the nations, which are silenced by God's powerful voice. So beginning with verse 4, we read, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. So again, we've already tipped our hand. This is a psalm of Zion. And so with that being said, we're concluding that the city of God is Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So right here in this section of Yahweh ensuring peace, we see Jerusalem receive special attention. Uh, the most consequential city in the history of the world, right? It still gets a lot of attention, and it will get even more attention in the days to come in, in the eternal state. So the city where God's special presence has been identified. Now, note when Jerusalem is introduced, what element is highlighted here? Uh, what, natural, what natural element is introduced in speaking to Jerusalem? Yeah, we have water in what form? Yeah, so we have these, this river whose streams make glad the city of God. And with this, do you see the contrast of the opening section with its roaring and foaming water? Now we can pause here and enjoy the stream just for a moment and consider a few things as it gives us 
I think, three primary options for its inclusion. So why did the psalmist give this? Was uh, He goes from roaring and tumultuous water to there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, that make glad Jerusalem. I think there's three potential reasons for him including that here. So one, maybe it's just that, a poetic contrast expressing Jerusalem's peace as Yahweh's special presence preserves preserves his people. I think that's a really good conclusion. I think that you have a real strong contrast. Let's say everything goes as bad as it can, and then he says, but Jerusalem, God's special city where he's set his affection, there's a gentle stream. You see a very clear contrast there. The second option could be that it's with a view to the actual water source of the city itself, the, the Gihon Spring. So, um, which, if you've been to Jerusalem, you're, you're familiar with its, its routing. It's very important to have water, right? You know, we take it ex- for extraordinary, uh, just take it for granted. We turn things on, the water comes on. We got a break in the water line somewhere. It's, ah, oh, we're inconvenienced. We got to boil the water. We can't wait. You know, it's, it's critical, absolutely critical. And then what of, of consequence um, happened with that? water source in Jerusalem at a time when it was under siege in one of our potential historical contexts. Does anybody remember? Major engineering feat. So you're out of answers. Um, (laughs) This is kind of road guy-ish. I don't know if this would fall road, but they they tunnel. They tunnel underground at two different, from two different sides, which this is a pretty amazing, even, even today I think it'd be amazing. They tunnel and they meet in the middle, which is a rather magnificent accomplishment, but they were redirecting the water. It was a shrewd strategic move for the preservation of the city while under siege, so they could guarantee their water source. So maybe that's part of it, because again, we have a historic context where Jerusalem potentially under siege, and there's a river God's pr- providing. He's giving He's giving a care for his people. There's a peaceful water. <clears throat> Third, it may be with a view to the future. Any ideas to what a future uh, representation of water and springs in Jerusalem could be indicative of. And when the river flows out. She's got answers. Yeah. That was. <laughs> All right, go ahead, ladies. Right. Tell me. Because I can't answer anymore. Silas, <laughs> <laughs> come on. No, if you go Pulling out from the throne of God or before the throne of God. Yeah, so in Ezekiel, Ezekiel's temple. Yes. It, the water just comes out and it's deeper and deeper. And we have very clear imagery there. So it's potential that maybe it's a reference looking at that. I do think the more natural conclusion is a combination of the first two, the poetic reference to the historic reference, a contrasting picture of peace and provision. But the conclusion of the psalm does appear to have a view to the future, which does open the door for maybe all three. So fair enough. We, we, we don't know for sure. We can... Uh, um, make reasonable conclusions off of that. So we have this peaceful river. <clears throat> and then um, we come continue to verse 5, and here we read, God is in the midst of her, so in the midst of Jerusalem. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. And so again, what? how do we tie, t- how do we tie peace to Jerusalem? It's the what? Presence. The presence of God, right? So that's a reminder. God's with his people. There's not grounds to be feared. Uh, fearful. God's with his city. There's, an agree, there's grounds to, to not be moved, not to be shaken, to be confident. He cares for his people. He will deliver his people. And again, this appears to be a striking contrast to those though examples of the first section. Though this happens, this happens, this, nothing like that happens to Jerusalem. She's unshaken. Same term for the mountain shaking. You use it in reverse. Jerusalem doesn't shake. So where the earth is radically changing, a violent pattern mirrored by the nations, 
dramatically inst uh, dramatic instability and violence. So they actually mirror some of that natural language of the first section. But Jerusalem doesn't. The nations are like that. They're unstable. They're shaking. They're out of control. They're moving. Jerusalem's fixed. And they're enjoying peace. So in contrast, Jerusalem will not be moved. Now, much more can be said of the, the beloved city, but it's not our charge this evening. We've got to stay focused, so we're going to keep moving on. So, but still, it's unique consequence um, and the expression of peace and stability with the always presence there. I do think that's something to give time and attention to, but I think we do that pretty decent here already. So we're going to move on, especially we're nailing those Ezekiel questions. So good job, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I had a resource. Yeah, you know, um, that's what we, we use. Um, so use our resources. Also, the time of their deliverance. What's the time of their deliverance? And it's quite literally a time of deliverance. When something happens. When morning dawns. Now, um, I have in my notes, we're not, we can't be pound the pulpit certain. Does anybody have any historic context where people actually would pound the pulpit? I don't think they do it much anymore. They do these glass little flimsy ones. We've got a good, if we wanted to pound the pulpit, we're, we're set. But we're not going to be that definitive. We're not going to say, ah, this is exactly why. But again, we can come to some reasonable conclusions based off of potential historic context, based off of maybe the development of the psalm here. So this may have been another point of affirmation for the two historic contexts, because in both of them that we mentioned, we see a like conclusion when, with specifically the time of their deliverance. They experienced full and final deliverance in the morning. The Lord literally decimated armies, and it was when the sun came up and Israel looked out that, wow, it's over. Yeah. And so in the morning, it's not that... Um, well, this is when the Lord delivers his people, but when the morning dawns, like, wow, we can see now. We know that the Lord's provided us peace. A peace that was costly, but a peace. So when morning dawned, they likely, though, it had been a long night, I would imagine. Um, likely restless night. But the morning dawned and deliverance was known. Peace was the natural result. And then we shift from Jerusalem to the nations in verse 6. And the psalmist writes, the nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered, he raised his voice, the earth melted. So now we're back to that turbulence again, and you get a bit of a, a Psalm 2 feel here, don't you? So I'm, I'm personally done a lot of work in the Psalms, and I think Psalm 1 and 2 are your pillars that the Psalter is going to mostly draw from. It clearly has a, a wide range of expression, but I think that Psalm 1 and 2 really form a, a pretty robust foundation for the whole of the Psalter. And here you have a bit of a Psalm 2 feel here with the nations raging only to be silenced by Yahweh's response. Yahweh speaks. Now it's over. And in Psalm 2, it was Yahweh's answer was the sun, um, S-O-N. And here we have a dramatic expression of judgment. They roar like the crashing ocean, but Yahweh speaks and the earth does what? Melts. Melts. I mean, that's quite dramatic. So I hope you maybe recall something from last week at Psalm 29. Remember the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the voice of Yahweh. We give special attention to Yahweh's thundering and powerful voice. Again, it's a little bit of what we're seeing here. Then we come to the final verse of this section, the thematic assurance woven throughout the psalm. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Yahweh of hosts, or he who leads the armies the most perfect and magnificent armies, armies of such a nature that one of his angels quite literally decimates whole armies of men, right? And this is not 
It wasn't like a platoon. This is thousands, which again is just, you know, we have confidence in the, uh, the accuracy of the scriptures. And so we know, wow, that really happened in thousands at a time. That's incredible. Thousands of soldiers fall to this, to one angel in a given context. And it's he who leads this army that's, that's who's with his people. That's who's with his people. And he's a stronghold or as might otherwise be stated, a mighty fortress. And now we come to verse eight. Um, come behold the works of Yahweh who has wrought desolations in the earth. In this final section, the psalmist is calling us to come, to behold the works of Yahweh. You need to come look at this. You need to come see. Come and behold is a, a call to remember Yahweh's long-standing and faithful works. It's, again, part of what we try to accomplish in our weekly attention on, on Wednesdays and Sundays. So to come look, to behold, not just instruction, but also see what the Lord's done. And regarding this, uh, Willem van Gimmeren makes a, a helpful statement regarding why this must be a, a consistent element of our spiritual diet. He states, he states the, recit the recitation of the mighty acts of God plants deep in the memory of God's people the evidence of his care, protection, and providential rule. So you see the value of it. Be reminded. Let it take root in your heart and your mind so that it can impact your thoughts. It can impact your worship. It can impact your confidence. And we see this getting unpacked as we come to verse 9. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. This is peace, but it's peace by compulsion, right? This isn't brokered peace. This is you will submit. So peace by compulsion or submission. Yahweh, the God of Jacob, will be exalted throughout the earth. So there will be peace, but one must kiss the sun. Remember Psalm 2 again. Kiss the sun, pay homage to him, submit to him. And we're again reminded that what does he do? Psalm 2, he utterly crushes and defeats his enemies, bringing them into full and final submission. He breaks them with a rod of iron, shatters them like a potter's vessel. And when we were in Psalm 2, we reminded you that that looks forward to something at the end, right? In Revelation, we have same language, that ruling with a rod of iron, and he's going to accomplish these things. So that's where we have some, a little bit of our eschatological focus here. And this drives us to the heart of the psalm that was established in the opening verses and expressed twice in the closing of the second and third sections, along with its immediate application here. So we're going to see that redundancy of theme, but first let's look at the application. And, and who better to give application? Sometimes we struggle with application. We try to give good truth. And then, well, how can we express that that should work itself out in people's lives? Well, here Yahweh is giving the application. So perfect application. And what does he say? This is where he interrupts and joins, cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Pretty reasonable grounds not to be fearful and have peace, right? And once more, the section finishes with Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. So Yahweh has and always will prove himself faithful. And in this, he is present, he is safe, and he is, he is secure. Therefore, where are we? Well, we're without fear, right? That's where we should be. We're without strife. We're bounding in peace. So once more, we've observed that Yahweh's um, presence eradicates fears, ensures peace, and strife. And before we sing, we will finish with singing, and I'll, we'll say goodbye to our, our Facebook friends in just a moment here. But um, nevertheless, before we do that, um, I want to actually read um, something from Steve Lawson, his commentary in the Psalms. I think it's a two-volume 
or two volumes of a larger series, I guess. Um, in, ter in terms of Psalm 46, something that gives us a little bit of historic commentary to a tie to Psalm 46, to what we'll sing, and just to, to give it some more fuller appreciation for us. He states, Martin Luther is one of the key figures in church history, a man mightily used by God to bring reformation to the church. The year, 1527, was the most difficult of his life. After 10 demanding years of leading the Reformation, a dizzy spell overcame him in the middle of a sermon on April 22nd of that year, forcing him to stop preaching. Luther feared for his life. On July 6th, while eating dinner with friends, he felt an acute buzzing in his ear and lay down again, convinced he was at the end of his life. He partially regained his strength, but a debilitating discouragement set in as a result. In addition, heart problems and severe intestinal complications escalated the pains of death. Of this ordeal, Luther wrote, quote, I spent more than a week in death and hell. My entire body was in pain, and, I've still, and I still tremble. Completely abandoned by Christ, I labored until the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God. End quote. What was worse, the dreaded Black Plague had entered Germany and spread into Wittenberg. Many people fled, fearing for their lives. Yet Luther and his wife Kay remained, believing it was their duty to care for the sick and dying. Although Katie was pregnant with their second child, Luther's house was transformed into a hospital where he watched many friends die. Then, without warning, Luther's one-year-old son, Hans, became desperately ill. With death surrounding him on every side, Luther was driven to seek refuge in God as never before. Psalm 46 became the strength of his soul. As a result, Luther expanded its truths into the hymn for which he is most famous, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Its majestic and thunderous proclamation of God, who is our all-sufficient all refuge in our weakest moments, has become the enduring symbol of the Reformation. Others that I was reading would say that, and I guess this really primed him for that season in which he ended up writing A Mighty Fortress. Um, he and uh, the um, his partner in translation in terms of, I guess, the, the Hebrew portion of the scriptures, at least from Hebrew to German, um, they would struggle at different times, sometimes with translation efforts and sometimes just with other uh, threats and problems that came with that season of life and ministry that they were experiencing. Um, and they would actually stop and actually just sing Psalm 46. So I guess that uh, matured into um, the hymn that we, we now have. So we'll finish with singing that, but we're not.